Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another episode of your second favorite podcast. I'm here with the usual suspects, Justin, Ooh. Garrick, Ooh. and Gabe. Ooh. And joining us today, Garrick, if you'd be so kind as to introduce our guest. You have seen him in various movies and TV shows, such as Sons of Anarchy, Hellboy. And if you're that producer, you better not see him in the streets. We got Ron Perlman in the building, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate you taking the time out and stuff like that. Um, I think we're just going to get right into it. Ron, who are you? Where'd you come from? What's your story? Well, I've been trying to figure out who I am for uh, a long time now. So uh, who knows? Maybe this could be the moment where everything starts to become um, less uh, unclear. (laughs) Um, But I come from New York City. I was born and raised uh, in Washington Heights section of New York City, which is the northernmost part of Manhattan. Um, my parents lived there their entire lives. They met there and uh, they, they lived there. They fell in love there. They died there. And somehow, somewhere along the way, I popped out. Um, and um, so I, uh, my background is uh, the lean, mean streets of New York. Um, and um, I stayed in school for as long as I possibly could because I was mostly ter- terrified of coming out into the world and, and having to to um, be responsible and uh, <laughs> and pay bills and make a living and stuff. It sucks. So I have a master's <laughs> yeah. degree from the University of Minnesota, which was the only time I left New York for any period of time in my entire youth. And uh, that was from 1971 to 73. Let me know when you get bored with my, my bio. <laughs> we, got, we have so much time. Yeah, exactly. So no, this is exactly. It's really impossible. Um, the, <laughs> that master's degree was in theater, correct? Yes, it was. Amazing. Awesome. awesome. Amazing. So, uh, when when did you figure out you wanted to pursue acting as, yeah. a, as, a, as like a full-time career? Because obviously going to Minnesota from New York to pursue it and acting is not a small feat. So. No, and, and I don't have small feet, so you know that's why the match was so perfect. It's got puns, folks. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a theme there, you know. Big feet jump into big, <laughs> big feet, projects and shit. Feet, big feats. Um, no, I, I I did my first play in high school, um, and uh, it was kind of a, a discovery of the community that I that I felt I was meant to be a part of. I finally was in a group of people uh, while we were rehearsing the play that was where I was one of the least fucked up people in the group. Um, and so that's when you discover, oh shit, maybe this, maybe this is my métier, maybe this is my uh, milieu, uh, all those French words. Uh, maybe this is my entrepreneur. No, no, that's a different one. Filet uh, mignon. There we go. Uh, like, <laughs> now we're back on uh, track, yeah. A rose compoyo. No, that's a whole different language. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I was—I fell so in love with the uh, whole process. Uh, you know, you you rehearse, and while you're rehearsing, you're discovering, um, taking these kind of words that are on a page and, and, and breathing life into them, and, and then and then. Um, finding humanity in them and all of a sudden after a period of time an audience shows up and you start doing it in front of them and you start getting responses and you start realizing you're controlling um however many people are in the audience which is kind of an aphrodisiac and um so i 
I, I went in a whole hog. And basically from the moment that I did my first play in high school, I did nothing but plays for the rest of my time in high school. Then nothing but plays for the entire four years of undergrad, which was in the Bronx in New York. And then two more years of uh, grad school at the University of Minnesota, just doing one play after another. I'd be rehearsing one thing in the, in the afternoon and uh, performing something else at night. Um, and that was my laboratory. That was where I kind of, you know, that, that eight years worth of stage was where I um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, started flexing the muscles and failing and succeeding and figuring out um, um, the, the tricks of the trade mm. and um, falling deeper and deeper in love with uh, with the, the aphrodisiac that is acting on stage in front of people and getting a, a real-time response. You, you feel it electrically in the air. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's pretty cool. I feel like, especially you growing up in New York, you kind of have access to a, a lot of playhouses, I would assume, yeah. right? Like the, the the theater over there has to be rich. Like, was it easy for you to kind of find, you know, gigs and stuff for you to do and, and, and all that? Well, once I got back from uh, the U of M, by that point, I said, okay, I, I don't think I can waste any more time um, uh, getting more degrees and just kind of avoiding you know, the, the real reality of, of the thing. The reason why I, I avoided it as long as I did is because every, everybody that I knew who was trying to be an actor in New York, their clothes were threadbare. They had no money for anything. They ate spaghetti three times a day um, or ramen or, you know, like whatever you do when you, mm -hmm. when you have zero money. And their lives seemed to be completely fucking miserable. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said, well, I don't, I, I don't think I'm good enough to jump into that pack. And I, I don't certainly don't think I'm uh, <clears throat> prepared for that kind of lean, um, non-gratifying um, kind of approach mm -hmm. to living. Right. But then when I realized, like, I, 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 I didn't get a thrill from anything unless I was acting, um, I said, okay, there's no more avoiding this. So my, uh, the first time I, I, I experienced real New York, like midtown New York, downtown New York, mm -hmm. Washington Heights is almost like a different borough, mm -hmm. even though you're still technically in Manhattan, mm -hmm. uh, was when I came back from grad school, I got a place in Greenwich Village and, and yeah, I started auditioning for, um, off, off Broadway theater because you didn't need a, any kind of uh, credentials. You didn't need any union cards to do those kind of plays. Mm -hmm. They didn't pay anything, but um, it was an opportunity to do more theater and maybe, you know, have people see you um, and work with people who were actually trying to do the same thing I was. So there was some networking involved with it and, and everything like that. And, and uh, you know, so from 1973 to 1980, I just did really low budget um shitty theater <laughs> in new york but i pretty much and every once in a while you know um um i would see a 50 dollars bill in the street and so i treat myself to a broadway play nice. you know one way or another but yeah there there there's a lot of ways to get exposed mm -hmm. to all of the culture in new york 
uh, theater being um, um, very much a vital part of it. And, uh, and, and luckily for a guy like me who wanted to immerse himself in that world, there was you know so much happening, so much going on, particularly when I was doing it, which was the 70s and the 80s, mm -hmm. um, you know. So uh, um, uh, it was still very vital. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, it it didn't have the kind of competition it has now, um, you know, and, and uh, actors were very happy staying in New York and just doing theater. Right. Um, and then I'm sure that, that that networking in New York was was very crucial to to you, I guess, transitioning into cinema, which um, how did that come about going from being in the theater pretty much your entire life up to this point? Uh, what was the transition like going from the stage to an actual movie like mm -hmm. like cinema? I think it was 1981 was when the first movie you did came out. Was it, I think the first it was one came out in, in 81. I actually uh, had my first meeting for that that movie in 79. Oh, wow. OK. And and, and uh, didn't start shooting it until uh, 79 slash 80. And then it came out in 81. It was called Quest for Fire. It was a caveman movie. And the reason why I got it is because of my um, sort of simian Neanderthal um, <laughs> facial structure. It had nothing to do with talent. It had nothing to do with uh, anything other than the fact that the guy said, think of the amount of money we could save on makeup if we had. <laughs> so um, that's, got what, it all. that's how that happened. That's awesome. It's, um, caveman. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I guess try, try parlaying a career when you, you know, your only credential is yeah, I played a caveman that lived eighty thousand years ago. That's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> I got real depth in my characters. Trust me, like I can do it he's, all. He's been around yeah. eighty thousand years. <laughs> exactly. Um. So uh, I guess the relationship with with the director that you worked with did that. Uh, did that lead to, I guess, because um, you did two of his movies because the next one was was um name of a rose in 986 i believe correct or, or the, uh, i think i missed yes one. 86 was name of the rose and then um 94 was enemy at the gates mm -hmm. so i did a third film for jean jacques i know who directed all three of those and then we worked together again i don't know in what year but that was maybe about uh, 2016, uh, he, he, he did a miniseries uh, for Epics mm -hmm. or Epic or whatever that um, uh, adjunct uh, streaming network is of mm -hmm. MGM um, called The Day in the Life of Harry K. Bear or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that. So we worked together like four, four or five times. Right. Um, and um, that was when I discovered the glory of uh, working with someone, um, scratching the surface very deeply mm -hmm. uh, from going to just a kind of a superficial working relationship to becoming friendly enough to want to keep working with them over and over again. Right. And which has been a theme of my life. There's a bunch of directors that I've done three or four or five things for. Um, which I love because it kind of harkens back to um, my favorite period in cinema, which was the 40s, 30s and 40s, where we, you, you saw that the great directors always had their troupe of actors, the same guys that right. worked with them over and over again because they admired each other so much. 
they obviously enjoyed each other's company so much. Yeah. And, you know, there was a shorthand, you know, um, the director would be thinking something and the actor would be able to guess exactly how to, um, to, um, uh, get there on a performance level. Yeah. So, um, I'm a big fan of that. And I've been a major recipient of, of those kinds of relationships over the years. But the very first one was with this Frenchman, this genius Frenchman named Jean-Jacques Anneau, who directed those four films. How'd you end up meeting him? He was looking for people who looked like Neanderthals. <laughs> <laughs> You're not paying attention. <laughs> We're going to get quizzed after this. I know, yeah. seriously. He's going to got to get homework after this. No. <laughs> but um, that's, yeah, That I, I, I think that, you know, at least from, because, I mean, none of us have any insight into the world of acting. Yeah. I, I can only imagine that having that relationship with someone you've worked with, you know, multiple times on, on multiple films is imperative to the creation of that, you know, from start to finish when you have that rapport with a director that you've worked with multiple times. I'm sure that's very, very important over the, like, you know, to consistently go back to the same person and consistently, I guess, deliver what they're looking for in, you know, why they asked you to be in the movie in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm, yeah. Who would you say was like the easiest director to work with over the years that you've, that you've worked with? Um, well, Jean-Jacques, because, um, by the time we worked on something for the second time, we realized, my God, that there's, um, you know, he trusts me. You know, he trusts me to give this role to, and then um, lets me run wild in terms of, of uh, what I bring to it. Um, when there's trust on a set or in any walk of life, you know, it, everything goes so much smoother and everything is uh, so much more joyful because trust kind of um, connotes so many other things like uh, um, um, respect mm -hmm. and uh, admiration. You're not going to have trust unless you have those other things as well. So right. then there was uh, Guillermo del Toro, who I also have now done, I think, I can't, I lost count, but it's at least six projects, mm -hmm. two of which were Hellboy, but the first movie he ever made was a thing called Kronos, um, Spanish film made in Mexico City, very, very, very tiny, low-budget film, mm -hmm. and won all kinds of awards, and it was the, the uh, springboard for Guillermo being introduced to the world as uh, an important new voice in cinema. And then I kind of rode um, his wave of, you know, as he evolved and as he did more projects, he had mm -hmm. me in a lot of them. Um, so that's easy because yeah. that same thing that, you know, the kind of a trust, the kind of like, I'm going to, I'm going to entrust you with this role um, because I know once I do, there's one less thing for me to worry about. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful lot of stuff for a filmmaker to have to worry about. So the less things they have to worry about when they approach this mammoth undertaking of, of, of making a movie, um, the, the, the more smoothly things go. And, and I know he didn't ask this one, or I know he didn't answer this one yet. How did you meet him? <laughs> uh, J-Date. 
<laughs> You're perusing. <laughs> no, I, I actually I went to a cockfight in down in the alley in uh, Mexican uh, Mexican part of, of town. No, that's not true either. Um, I got. I would have believed you. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, all right. He's like East I, LA. I, I like, okay. Going, I, yeah, I was doing pretty good there for a yeah. second. <laughs> um, Guillermo, when he was getting ready to make this first film, he had done a lot of uh, television stuff down in Mexico, which was centered around horror and monsters and stuff. Mm. And, and in in preparing to figure out how to realize his vision for what monsters were going to look like in each of his projects, he was studying the work of most of the actors who worked for special effects makeup artists who created monster looks. Mm. You know, the guy who created... Frankenstein was the state of the art, you know, and and, and the Wolfman, all 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 those early um, special effects makeup artists. Mm-hmm. And because I had done um, uh, Crest of Fire and then Name of the Roads, and then Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. I was known as somebody who didn't mind putting on prosthetic makeup, mm-hmm. and and uh, and. Uh, um, doing kind of mask acting, right? Um, and Guillermo just had to watch a lot of it because he was a, a monster maker, yeah, and a monster director. So he was very familiar with my work, and I think he he wanted me to be a part of his first movie, almost like a talisman, like a good luck charm, you know, yeah. like a rabbit's foot, right? And so he wrote me this beautiful letter, and. Uh, and then came to Los Angeles and we broke bread together and we had a phenomenal time. And I ended up going down to Mexico and doing this movie. And it was the same, same scenario as with Jean-Jacques. We, we, we became much more than collaborators. We became really buds who enjoyed each other's company, mm-hmm. who, who uh, did way more than work together. We just hung out, we ate together. We went to see movies together. We talked uh, incessantly about cinema. And uh, we became really good friends. So as he broadened his path toward where we find him now, which is at the top of the food chain, he brought me along with him. That's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, When it comes to Guillermo del Toro's work with you, I was wondering, how does it feel voice acting? Like you just voice acted in uh, the new film Pinocchio that was out a while ago. When it comes to your roles, like we notice that you choose a lot of voice acting roles and just uh, live action roles, which do you prefer and what yeah. led you to wanting to do more voice acting? Cause your voice acting work is phenomenal. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You know, um, I went through, I've, I've gone through um, a lot of really, really lean times. I mean, if you look at, if you just count the number of things I did, it looks like I've been working nonstop from the time I started till now, but there were a lot of periods where there was two, three years that went by where I couldn't book a fucking gig to save mm-hmm. my life. And in the 90s, I just started to um, broaden my search for things. And I, I ended up with a voice at voiceover uh, agency who also cast uh, cartoons. And I started booking some of these cartoons and I realized, holy shit, this is so much fun. The guys who were in the room, mm-hmm. um, Maurice LaMarche and, and uh, 
I'm 73, so I can't remember anybody's name anymore, but (laughs) the guys who were doing the voice acting Mm -hmm. were not known for anything else. They were strictly voice actors, Mm -hmm. were the most talented motherfuckers. I mean, you'd you'd get finished doing a a session where we'd all be in the room and we'd all Mm -hmm. be doing the voices for for this cartoon. And cartoon is like, as you realize, you, as you know from seeing it, it's balls out comedy. Yeah. It's yeah. broad, it's big, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. And at the end of these sessions, I'd want to, you know, I'd look around and go, okay, who do I pay? Because I just, I just had the greatest time, you know, <laughs> so you know watching these guys act. And it became kind of um, uh, a real pure joy to... And then the more you do it, the more you're known for doing it, the more people you meet along the way who do other cartoons, mm-hmm. you know, this five or six potent um, animation studios in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers does huge amounts of, 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 of cartoon stuff. They're the ones who, you know, kind of, along with Disney, invented the state of the art. You know, yeah. They gave us Bugs Bunny and, and all of his pals. And you just start working and you start meeting people and they start inviting you to do more and more. And you start realizing this is like, you don't have to shave. You don't have to comb your hair. Mm-hmm. You show up, you sit in front of a microphone. Yeah, you go nuts. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, exactly. And you act like a fucking six-year-old. And, um, and then they pay you. And, and, they, and they pay you. <laughs> Sounds and great. you get on a podcast like this. <laughs> this prestigious which, podcast. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and you start talking about you know how much fun it was that's awesome that's awesome well that's uh, amazing what what were some i guess the first um cartoons that you worked on that made you kind of want to like man i want to do this again like like you know um referencing what you were saying a moment ago about just you know going in there with with i guess like you know almost no expectations and then it be, it becoming something that's like oh my god this is incredible um what were some of the earliest projects you worked on that i guess gave you that that want to come back I'm looking myself up on IMDb, <laughs> uh, because we were doing that I, minutes ago. Minutes Don't worry. Ago. <laughs> there, there was um, oh look, I wrote Ron. My name came up. That's that's, uh, that's impressive. How's that? Uh, how's that feel? Yeah. How does that feel? How's that feel? Being able to Google yourself yeah. to be a top result on uh, Google. Um. <laughs> These days, the only thing I feel is back pain and you know, <laughs> Real leg shit. cramping. You know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I get you. And uh, rashes in the perineum. I just found out what the perineum is uh, watching uh, Ozempic commercials. <laughs> if you have a problem, if you have a problem with your perineum. You, you really want to stay home. I think I got one. You right heard it here first. Yeah. Yeah. You know what the perineum? You know what the perineum is? Yes. Gabe, yeah. Gabe, yeah. Gabe uh, to body school. Yeah. Gabe. So Gabe is actually he's uh, he majors in in kinesiology. So we all, all of our our body questions we go to this guy. The uh, perineum is the all of you guys. <laughs> Damn. Wow. All right. What is what is the vernacular word for perineum, Gabe? I think it is perineum. Is it not? Is it something? You should know. You have the degree. <laughs> not, not yet. yet. Yeah, almost. <laughs> not yet. Almost. Yeah. Working on it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to educate you and your audience as well. Let's the go. Perineum is the taint. <laughs> <laughs> the gooch. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Cool. And you know how the taint got its name, right? How? No. Well, it's that spot. You know that sits right in the middle. So 
taint your balls and taint your ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. Okay. This is great. <laughs> this is great. Okay. Love so, um, all of that. Uh, I don't know how we got into that, but no, uh, yeah. we don't need to leave too. We can figure it out. <laughs> this cartoon had nothing to do with it. <laughs> That would be crazy if your first cartoon was like, it's all about taints all and like weird idea, shit. Like, like, by the Somebody way. Somebody on, on Adult Swim needs to do a whole cartoon about, about the taints. I'm sure, they're, I'm sure they're on it. Yeah. Either <laughs> it going. hasn't been done or they're yeah. in production right now. Yeah, yeah, you, may, yeah you may. That's money right there. You guys there. might be onto something. Yeah. Don't. If you're, if you're watching this, we're patenting this. We're patenting the taint yeah. cartoon. Yeah. Ron, do you want to be a part yeah, of this? Yeah, I was going to say, Ron. Well, yeah. If you'd like, you're more than welcome. Yeah. Intellectual what property. Is it, what does it pay? Um, uh, hopes uh, and dreams. <laughs> dreams. There you go. We're, we're going to pay you an exposure. Yeah, exposure. Yeah, you, yeah. You come to me with something big and, and, and sexy. Yeah, I think, yeah, really, really and, big. And I'll be your Huckleberry. Um, no, but the very first, uh, as I was looking it up, I remember mm -hmm. the very first cartoon I was ever invited to do was called Bonkers, mm. which was about uh, a detective named Bonkers who was some animal, I can't remember what he was. Um, I mean, uh, it's really important that I remember um, <laughs> the name of this voiceover actor because he's legendary. Mm. I feel like that community is kind of small to an extent. Yeah, like I know a lot of the voice actors, for sure. they do everything. Yes. Like Tara uh, Tar okay, Strong so, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. The lead actor in Bonkers was Jim Cummings. Mm -hmm. Oh, gotcha. Frank Welker was in Bonkers. Jeff Bennett. He, this is royalty. This is yeah. voiceover mm -hmm. royalty. Um, April Winchell. Uh, this is where I met Maurice LaMarche, mm -hmm. who does the best. Uh, he, he's Pinky, Pinky in the Pinky in the Brain. I mean, right. That's right. This was this is the state of the art. And um, the woman who brought me onto the show mm -hmm. was um, Andrea Romano. She directed uh, most of the episodes. Mm -hmm. And um, she gave me my very first voiceover gig. And then pretty much any time... Andrea worked after that. She 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 was on the payroll of, of Warner Brothers, which was a very mm. prolific animation studio. Mm -hmm. Right. So pretty much anytime she worked, she she put me in it. I was on Teen Titans with her, and uh, so many gigs. Um, she was so much fun. She was so much fun to work with. She really loved comedy. Mm -hmm. She was a funny lady herself. When you she gave when you gave a performance. That tickled her funny bone. You got so much appreciation, so much love, and it was another one of those things where we just, you know, took our devotion for each other and our admiration for each other outside the studio and became really good friends. That's awesome. And do you find that was it... my first first voiceover gig? Nice. Do you also find it like I don't know if it's hard because especially with you, you know, doing theater, you kind of have a broad audience to. Uh, gather a reaction to and when you're in a recording booth it's kind of just you and the guy recording and maybe a few other auxiliary people 
did you find it almost harder to uh, kind of feel the reaction of what you were doing or were they all pretty receptive and kind of giving you more or less a North star to kind of go towards? Well, every experience, you, you just never know who you're going to be in the room with. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, whether it be a film or a play or a, a, a voiceover where you're just in a booth, mm-hmm. sometimes with the whole cast or sometimes just by yourself doing your own performance. And mm-hmm. then they, they put it all together. Like, that's, that's how I worked on Transformers. Mm-hmm. I never met anybody in the rest of the cast until the premiere, mm-hmm. which a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, the skill set is the same, mm-hmm. but the conditions are different. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're acting for the, the, the theater, you have to hit the top seat in the balcony. Mm-hmm. So you have to project and you have, there's a certain sort of size that you have to, even if you're doing something intimate, you have to make it look intimate, even though you're projecting to the back row. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in, in movies, you can be as intimate and as small as you want to be because you're mic'd and the camera is catching everything. Mm-hmm. And you're almost being asked to, to, to be super real mm-hmm. and super simple and uh, uh, authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no leeway for overacting when you're acting for, for... And then you get into voiceover stuff and some of it is... Um, kind of like what I just described, but then some of it is like balls out comedy, like mm-hmm. Bugs Bunny. If I was on a Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon, I you know, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. your, your level is just like, you're you're invited to, mm-hmm. to be wacky and big mm-hmm. and fun. So you basically have to figure out, you know, those, are, that, those things are up to you to figure out gotcha. what levels you need to and what, uh, kind of how to temper it's like making a recipe mm. you know you're cooking but you're using different ingredients uh every time gotcha right right um and then I, i'm just curious because i'm thinking about this now um when when you're doing movies doing voice actor work um you know eventually it got to a point where you know superhero movies were like the biggest thing kind of just mm-hmm. every they were everywhere um, so when you first started doing, I guess, more uh, roles in, in, in that realm, like, you know, you know, doing Blade 2 and then doing Hellboy and things like that, um, was that something that was, that you wanted to pursue prior to you getting an offer? Or is it like you getting off the road and like, oh, yeah, because it'd be kind of cool. And then kind of, you know, it, it went from there. Um, I would say 95 percent of the stuff that I did came out of nowhere. Mm. You know, I, w- I could be pursuing something for 10 years. And then all of a sudden I get a call. Hey, Ron, I'm doing Blade. I wrote this part for you. And now I'm doing Blade. <laughs> it wasn't because I was dreaming of doing Blade mm-hmm. or, or aspiring to be doing Blade. It was just mm-hmm. a GMO got the gig mm-hmm. and he spread the wealth, you know. And uh, now, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm in this franchise, yeah. this mm-hmm. Blade franchise. And now I got to go around the world telling them how great the Blade franchise is, even though I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's that's part of the game. But, um, yeah, most of the stuff that I ended up doing for real came out of, not because it was a, kind of a, um, 
the end result of my own efforts. But it was just, you know, very rarely have I tried to get a, a project up and running mm -hmm. and then been successful. Right. I did have a company, a production company, for about uh, five years called Winging a Prayer of Pictures. And I got a bunch of movies that from the ground up uh, made and done. But that's also really hard. And um, your success rate and your burn rate are, are, are really uh, uh, subject to too many whims mm -hmm. and too much capriciousness. And so uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Of course. But in terms of my, my acting work, um, when I wasn't giving myself a job because I was producing the fucking movie, <laughs> um, most, most things just came out of nowhere. Right. And, uh, and uh, you'd read it and you'd go, sometimes you'd go, oh yeah, this is just one to pay the rent. I hope nobody sees this piece of shit. <laughs> sometimes you look at it and you go, wow, this is tripped out, man. I'm, I'm, I'm working with a, a mind-blowing bunch of people mm -hmm. and um, the script is fucking, you know, out of this world, mm -hmm. smart and fun and, and unpredictable and exciting and, and dangerous, you know, and you just basically take what you can get mm -hmm. a lot of the time mm -hmm. uh, and make the most of it. Mm -hmm. I, and, uh, you know, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but where does Blade 2 fall into that? <laughs> I, love, I love, I love that movie. <laughs> When you start a sentence with, you don't have to answer this, uh, I, you know, my mind just kind of. <laughs> he was like, not going to answer it. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> totally. This no. isn't about the perineum, is it? Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. Um, I was just wondering uh, which of those categories does Blade 2 fall into? Because I, I love that franchise and I love mm -hmm. that movie. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, Reinhardt added a, a, a lot of dynamic and a lot of depth to that movie, adding a character that, you know, Blade had to work with, but it was still like there was this animosity, this tension the entire movie that doesn't get resolved until the last ten minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, that was that was just Guillermo having fun. I mean, he went in and uh, they were uh, they had already made one movie, mm -hmm. a Blade movie, and uh, Guillermo, being a comic book aficionado as he is, and a real real fan of uh, horror. Blade, the Blade franchise, the Blade world was up his alley and he went into the studio and pitched his idea of what Blade 2 would look like and they said this sounds really cool and they hired him and right after they hired him he called me up and he said I'm thinking about this role for you and blah 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 mm -hmm. so I was along for the, almost the whole ride mm -hmm. and watched the, the this idea that he had for Reinhardt keep growing and keep evolving and keep changing and left a lot of room for me to make suggestions about you know what his place in the story was and and you know what his contribution was going to be what his impact was going to be so mm -hmm. that was uh just like one of these things that like like i said came out of the blue mm -hmm. but made for a really cool ride mm -hmm. hell yeah that's awesome uh question i'm just curious now out of like you seem to really enjoy talking about reinhardt and just remembering all of that what do you think would be, or who is your favorite character that you've yeah. played or voiced just in like in your entirety of your career? Like, who do you think that would I be? I get that question. I get that question a lot. And mm -hmm. I can understand. I would ask that question of, of, you know, people whose work I watched and was obsessed with watching. Mm 
And um, the, the fact of the matter is, I, I have been, and I'm not blowing smoke, and I'm not making it sound like this is a generic, cowardly answer, mm -hmm. but there's no way to, uh, with all of the amazing parts that, that fell into my lap, that came my way, like I said, mostly randomly, there's no way to say that Hellboy was better than Clay Morrow, was better than The Beast, was better than Judge Purnell on uh, Hand of God. I mean, there have been so many roles that I just fucking loved the characters mm -hmm. and then playing them, finding them, you know, because as you, as, as you give the performance, you're finding the character as you go along. Um, there's no way I could pick out one okay, or, or a handful. Yeah. That's, that's completely understandable. Addendum, who would you want to have a drink with the most? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> out of all your characters. Like, who would you want to sit down the, drink and cigar? Well, just, I would, I, just me. I would, I, would, <laughs> I, think I, think I think I'm cooler than anybody I've ever played. There you go. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yes. So um, funny. When, I uh, spend a lot of time drinking and smoking cigars all by myself. So. He's gets sick as shit. Cause, yeah. cause basically, people don't like me. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but <clears throat> so who, who gives a shit? <laughs> um, me mentioning about how you you know prepare for roles and, and finding those characters. What what is that process like for you when you get a role and and you start to work on a project and then you know you're reading the script obviously you're you're identifying with the character etc what is that process like to you from going from you know getting a project starting to work on a project and then finding that character in that project in that moment where you know you're going through your scenes you're you're going through your lines and you're thinking okay well this is what this character would do in this scenario like what what what's that process like for you i guess going from you know, reading the script, actually being on set and, and turning that character into, you know, your performance. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's pretty immediate because the minute you read something, if you read it and you can't figure out um, who this character is in the story, why he's in the story, what his, his uh, kind of persona looks and feels like there's no way to pursue it any further but the opposite is true when you read a script and you know you they, they send you a script and they say take a look at this character while you're reading it and you see uh the you you really dig the world of the of the movie you know what the where the movie is and, and who's in it and what they're up against and you know what happens in the course of the film and you really dig the guy that they're asking you to play and and know that you understand them if you don't understand them you know that there's a, a million roads in that you can you know if you work on them and, and think about them enough you'll get there that's very important because mm -hmm. you don't want to play anything that you don't understand and you don't want to play anything that you don't feel you're right for you don't want to play anything that you don't feel you're going to have a, a, a degree of success mm -hmm. in because it's not good for you, but it's totally not good for the project. If you're just playing a role and then hoping 
you know, for some sort of divine intervention. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, you got to know pretty much as you're reading it, like, oh, yeah, I get this guy. And not only do I get him, I dig him enough where I want to spend time figuring him out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and as I'm figuring him out, the audience will be as well. Mm -hmm. And that'll be fun. So that's, that's my criteria. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty immediate. You know, the minute you read a script, you uh, you either dig it, I mean, you dig the character that they're asking to play, or you don't. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, don't say yes. Right. It's good advice. Is, um, and then, is there any any characters that you've you've portrayed? I guess to rephrase the question that was asked earlier, that that process has be has come easier than others, or you know, has it always been pretty evenly, you know, like like immediate, like you said? Well, when Guillermo wrote Hellboy. Um, what he had, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, when he adapted Hellboy, Hellboy had already existed as a comic book. Right, yeah. And then if you read the comic book, you realize Hellboy spoke in one word sentence. <laughs> Sometimes not words, just grunts. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he was really not very verbal. And his pers persona, his personality was not particularly um, well uh, delineated. Mm -hmm. So in making the film, it was Guillermo's job to put meat and bones on the character and give him a personality. Right. And since since what was fascinating to Guillermo about Hellboy was the fact that he's a basically got this unbelievable physical skill set, but he's basically an underachiever, mm -hmm. a slob mm -hmm. who really just wants to stay home and eat pizza <laughs> and watch Three Stooges. Mm -hmm and Marx Brothers movies and play with his cats, then go out and save the world. He said to my, he said to himself, okay, I'm going to build this whole character around Ron Perlman's personality because he's a slob <laughs> and, and really wants to not go out and do anything for anybody. Just wants to stay home and play with the dogs. I get it. And watch, <laughs> and watch Marx Brothers movies. <laughs> So that was the easiest character to play because he wrote me. Um, he just like me for real. <laughs> That's incredible. And, and, and even though I was wearing uh, four hours worth of rubber on my face, yeah. mm -hmm. and I didn't look like me at all, he was the easiest character to play, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. The hardest character to play, I wore no makeup at all except for some tattoos, and that was Clay Morrow and Sons of Anarchy. Mm. Because that was one of those roles where... Um, I almost was in that place when I read it that I said, don't say yes. Cause I didn't, I, I didn't relate to Clay Morrow. Mm -hmm. Clay Morrow was a ruthless, tough, badass, violent, militaristic, mm -hmm. gun loving murderer. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to get in. I really didn't know how to get in, but I also knew that if I s didn't take my best shot at him, um, I would be missing out on a phenomenal opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. So I said yes to Clay Morrow, but I was terrified because I didn't understand initially how to play him. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm... I'm noticing that there's a shaft of sun on my face. Is this <laughs> fucking up? Oh no, you're good. Yeah, yeah you're totally you're good. Yeah. yeah, I had the same beam of of light in my face. Earlier. <laughs> I was trying dodging to light. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's gonna move as we go along here. But but uh, 
I'm glad I did it because sometimes you have to reach beyond your grasp. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone and, and play things that are a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit uneasy. Um, and there's a lot of reward that comes with that, you know, like if you stick with it and, you know, and then you end up doing it and the audience, you know, you gives you the stamp of approval. That show was on for seven years. Yeah, so of course, yeah. We're all doing something that resonated. Such a, and that, yeah. that actually segues perfectly into another question I've written down here. Um, when you were, well, two, two questions, actually. When you first got the offer to do to do clay, was it how much information you given on the show itself? Like, were, were were you aware that it was like loosely based on Hamlet, or did that, or did you have to figure that out? Like, I guess as the show progressed. Yeah. No, I sat down with Kurt Sutter, who had created the show. They had already shot the pilot mm -hmm. with another actor playing Clay, mm -hmm. and they were. Uh, unhappy with uh, not his acting because he's a brilliant actor but they were unhappy with the fact that his tone wasn't as explosive and violent and operatic enough for what they were looking for so they right. decided to recast the role and reshoot all of his scenes but they needed to be very careful because they had already spent a lot of money on the first pilot of course so I sat down with Kurt and he gave me all of this, like, this is what you need to know, man. We want you to play the role. You're not going to get it unless you audition. You have to go into the network. You have to, you have to read for all of the executives, which is like 35 motherfuckers in the room. That's crazy. And uh, if you don't come in and audition, you're not going to get it. But mm -hmm. we do want you to, to, to come in and audition. We, we are all rooting for you to get it. And here's what you need to know. And he explained to me the whole model of, of the Hamlet um, kind of skeleton. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, the king is dead. Um, the queen is now married the king's best friend who now has usurped the kingdom and become the king by marrying the queen. Mm -hmm. And the prince, her offspring, is getting visitations um, saying something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Mm -hmm. which is basically how the springboard for Sons of Anarchy, which is, it was the exact same mm -hmm. um, parameters as it was based on Hamlet. Mm -hmm. And then from there on, it was completely unlike Hamlet because yep. it was motorcycles and, <laughs> right. and, and Hells Angel types. And, There's not know, motorcycles so. in Hamlet. Okay. okay. Good, good to know. Good to know. Well, it depends on what production you see. <laughs> what stage you're going um, through. But and then uh, you know to to piggyback I guess off of that question because I know that you said that was one of the hardest or the hardest role to prepare for. Did knowing that Clay was based on Claudius did that help you to develop the role to make it your own or was it I guess here's the guidelines and then it kind of just took on a life of its own as the show progressed you know over over the course of those seasons and and you understanding Clay as a character did that. I guess did those parameters of the fact that he was based on Claudius, did that help with the role at all or did it not matter in the end? No, it helps, of course, to know what where you fit into the world, you know, what your role is. And if you know that you're based on, on another uh, piece of literature, um, you get, you grab as much from that original source as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I went back and read Hamlet four, five, six times to see what I could um, borrow right. from Claudius 
and in order to you know build up my little paint box for my version of clay morrow mm-hmm. um but kurt's writing was always so specific and so vivid that you jumped off from there and then went deep right right off the bat into what he was asking of you in his storytelling mm-hmm. and um you know uh uh it was all you could do to keep up because he moved the story along really really rapidly right yeah and uh, and at a, at a pace that was almost dizzying mm-hmm. right yeah that show is a lot yeah. <laughs> uh, t- uh just two, two more sense of anarchy questions that piggyback off of of those um did i guess that pace was that difficult to adapt to while you were filming the show You know, I'm, I learned something on Sons of Anarchy, and that is uh, I don't like change very much. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of people who don't like change. Yep. yep. You get comfortable with, like, the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And then you get a script, and your best friend just gets whacked. And you were just, like, not ready for that, you, you know? Yeah. Like, so you, you have when you have the rug pulled out from under you, and you realize we're in a very unsafe world where no one is safe. Right. And, and there could be no complacency. And yet I'm, I'm a guy who really like clings on to the status quo. Uh, you know, once you, once you tell me what we're, what we're doing here, man, don't fucking change it up. On me. <laughs> yeah. Well, sense of anarchy changed every week mm-hmm. and we had to, you know, adapt to these conditions that were dizzying. Mm-hmm. Um, or else get run over by the locomotive that was coming for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was challenging. Right. And then um, when did you, or or did you ever, I guess, really kind of get comfortable in the role? Because I know that 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 pace obviously is, is you know, it affects how you portray the character and, and the fact that you mentioned earlier that it was the hardest character to, I guess like adapt to or, or portray. Was there ever a point in filming that you were kind of just like, okay, like I, I understand how to, I understand how to do this in a way to where I feel good about, yeah. you know, portraying the character. It's almost second nature at that point. Yeah, where 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 I guess did you ever feel comfortable adapting with that change uh, and and like adapting the character with that change or was it always kind of like a learning experience every time that something changed in the show i was never comfortable i had a sense of ownership mm-hmm. um i had a sense that dude you're fucking clay morrow you know yeah. so whatever problems you're having interpreting a scene or not knowing how to play a scene or not mm-hmm. feeling equipped to understand what to bring of yourself in order to apply it to this moment, get over it. Um, but that, that made for a lot of discomfort. Right. Cause I, I said Clay Morrow and Ron Perlman very, very didn't hardly intersect at all. Right. Um, so I was like being asked to, to do something way outside of my comfort zone. Cause you, you use the word comfortable quite, uh, Rightly. I mean, yeah, there are certain times where you're very comfortable and 
you know, I got this. And there are certain times where you got shit running down your leg going, ha, 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 ha. I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you get through it um, because uh, otherwise you don't get the paycheck. Yeah. Right. And then uh, last question, we can move on from this. Um, but when, when you found out that, uh, I guess, how Claymore was going to be taken care of as a character towards the end of the show, um, well, for, well, first of all, how far in advance did you, did you find out what Clay's fate in the show was going to be? And when you found out how they were going to, I guess, wrap the character and, and with the end of the show, um, what was your feelings towards that about how they, how they kind of, you know, ended the, ended that saga? Hated it. Really? Really. Fucking hated it. Hated it. Didn't want to say goodbye. Yeah. Was too much in love with uh, the guys coming to work on that show every day. Um, hated having to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and hated not making it all the way to the end. Yeah. Um, um, but not my call. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day. Yeah. I was going to ask too. And, oh, no, and, you know, I, the, the thing of it is we're, we're, we're dealing in a world where everybody's constantly walking on the razor's edge. Mm -hmm. Of course. And so, you know, ending up whacked, that's what you signed up for, man. Right. You know? and, and whether you're happy about it or comfortable with it or not is um, not for you to decide. Right. Yeah. How 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 long how far in advance did you know how Clay was going to die, or when he was going to die? Actually, I should say. Kurt brought me in at the beginning of season six because mm -hmm. uh, he died almost at the end of season six, and he said, "Right, this is what this is what's happening to you this season." And uh, I didn't say very much. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have much to say, uh, but it was a gut punch. It was it came as a, a surprise. Um, and uh, it was unpleasant. Yeah. Understandably so. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I can imagine, because like being on a show for that long, I mean, you do have to develop almost like a family, right? With all the other actors that you're participating with and, and all of those things. I, the How was that like family aspect of that show? Because, I mean, you guys were, at the end of the day, literally portraying a family to a certain extent. Of course. But also having the quote-unquote extended family of, of the gang and everything like that. Like, how how was that, developing those friendships and, and, and everything like that? Yeah, it's exactly, exactly what you described. Mm -hmm. It was way more than a gig. You know, when you're doing anything for six years, mm -hmm. it becomes more of a lifestyle. Of course. It becomes more of things that you depend on as part of your life that you're living it's not just a thing that i'm going to go off to do this job and i'll be back in two months and that'll be that you know six years is is um is a long time and the bond that was created with the the core members of the of the of the sons was deep and um very hard to um you know just casually come and go yeah um and like you say, the very first thing, you know, you, you talk about how I got started, you know, my first, very first high school play, I realized one of the things I love the most about this whole thing is that when you're in this situation where 
a bunch of people are all, all having to solve this problem and they're all going through these highs and lows together and then they have this triumphant moment where they give the performance and it's beautifully received there's a huge sense of family in that group right and it's very very heart-wrenching every time a job ends because you've you've come to depend on these people like you would in a family the mm -hmm. same dynamic uh is at play and so you know um maybe that's why actors drink so much or do drugs so much because they're what they're being asked to do emotionally is challenging of course yeah. you know they form they form these beautiful bonds and then the gig's over and you got to go back to your normal boring life mm -hmm. and um so you either jump off a bridge or you, you know, you start free basing or, you know, you just, uh, you know, you do what I do, which is uh, eat every, you know, container of haagen you can find. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great alternative. Yeah, what's your favorite? Yeah, yeah. What's the flavor you go? What's a go-to uh, post-series uh, ending? Kind of a, that's kind of a personal question. I got it, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll stay hey, away from those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, this is too personal. Uh, <laughs> With all of your shows and movies and the bonds you formed, which, like I know you just said Sons of Anarchy hit hard. Would you say that that one hit the hardest? Or is there another show or movie or something where after production and after wrap-up and it's already out there for everybody, you felt the most connection with at the end? And that was the hardest to let go of? Or if... Yeah, I think I think the reason why it's it's sons is because it was six years and yeah. I've never I've never done anything that lasted that long. That's mm -hmm. just a long time. Of yeah. course. You know. But I have a problem every time a job ends, especially if it was a fun one, especially mm -hmm. if if the group was like just whacked out, really close, everybody was hanging out at the end of work every day, going to dinners and hanging out and going mm -hmm. to each other's houses and playing cards and whatever whatever it was, um, you know, when that, when you break that shit up, you know, it's like you're, you're kind of at a loss for a, a few days, yeah, you know, you're, right. you're wandering around, um, aimlessly. Shall we talk about the elephant in the room? I think, I think it's, I think it's time. Yeah, I think, I think we have a couple oh, no, of wrap not up. The elephant. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a, it's a good place to introduce that we can still go back to some of the earlier exactly. questions that we have written down. But, um, so you were very, uh, as you put on Instagram and at this point you've said it all, yeah. <laughs> got to give you credit for you. Of course you don't hide your mind, which thank you for that. I'm sure there's a lot of people, especially in the industry that, uh, see you as, you know, very high and very well respected actor speaking your mind and truthfully, you know, which is almost a rare commodity to an extent these days. Hundred percent. Um, yeah. Obviously, your stance is pretty clear, but do you want to potentially add anything to your stance on on the strike that you guys are going through right now, or anything along those lines? Mm -hmm. Well, I will be adding things as we go along mm -hmm. here. Of course, I did not know that. Um, uh, what I had to say was going to uh, extend itself to the degree that it has. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to say something about um, labor and management mm -hmm. and the uneasy relationship that it's always had. Um, and I wanted to say something about unions and dignity and value and how 
uh, unions are um, in danger of becoming extinct because management is so determined to, to kill them. Because management can't stand when labor is organized and when labor is asking for uh, um, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, everything, you know, the big problem with, with, with the disparity between management and labor is that it's two different mindsets. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who um, are in management are there because uh, they really dig giving themselves obscene amounts of money mm-hmm. and having all of the power for themselves. Yeah. They don't believe anything uh, belongs to anybody but them. So there's mm. um, this entitlement that um, is perpetual. And if you're uh, a laborer, a worker bee, and you're happy being that, you don't want to be a CEO, you don't want to be the president of anything, you just want to be given the opportunity to ply your craft. And for plying your craft, to have the dignity of a good day's pay for a good day's work, and maybe um, get a, a nice, uh, uh, safe health plan for you and your family, um, and maybe have all of the work you put into lead to something like a pension, so that when you've put in 40, 50 years, you have something to show for it. Um, if it was up to management, you wouldn't get any of that shit. Yeah. And the only reason why, um, labor ever got any of that shit is because they formed unions and unions were the things that enabled the middle class in America. Now, if we are, um, you know, looking at all this historically, we're, 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 we're realizing we're at a time where the disparity between the 1% that has 80% of all the wealth in the country and the other 99% is greater than ever the gap is greater than ever. Um, it's because they've killed the middle class. You're either really, really rich or you're really, really poor. And there's very, very little in the middle. And they wanted that. So there's a, a tension between ma- management and labor. And um, when the strike happened, I basically s- just started talking about this. <laughs> Uh, this this thing that you and I are talking about now about management and labor. And then it got into um, some of the attitudes that are reflected in stupid statements that some of the guys in management had made. Mm-hmm. And I went viral. <laughs> and um, um I went viral in a way that was a, a little jarring mm-hmm. right? and a little scary. And even I went, Oh shit, you know, I don't want it. I don't, I don't, I don't want anybody to get hurt. Yeah. So I went back on, I went back on to explain 
mm-hmm. how offensive even having that thought is, much less articulating it, mm-hmm. and why I went so fucking ballistic. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't apologize. You shouldn't apologize. Correct. Correct. When somebody yeah. has that attitude. Yeah. But I did say you keep doing shit like this, and you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna make. A, a, a very challenging situation much worse yeah right because all you're doing is showing disdain for the people who are getting you correct that obscene amount of money you take in. yeah right and you're showing that you really have no regard for the quality of their lives yeah and um then uh, I did the same thing the next day. Next day was about a, a history lesson about yeah. how we got from family-owned businesses to corporate-owned corporate, corporate, mm-hmm. corporate owned businesses and what happens to something that deals with the, the beauty of the human existence when it's seen through the lens of, a, of, of corporate funding. And uh, and then the next day, I don't know why I talked about some other shit. So it's turned into this kind of like, um, I've gotten a, a lot of stuff off my chest because yeah. I really care uh, a, a huge amount about cinema and and and, and the and the world that I, I traffic in. Yeah, um, I feel like it has immeasurable value to the world at mm. large. I know what it's done for me. I know what it does to the working stiff that comes home and he's had his fucking snot beat out of him all day and he gets to sit down and watch a really cool movie or put on Sinatra or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just do something that where the culture makes him feel civilized again. Yeah, right. As the people who are on the receiving <laughs> end of that. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and that reminds him that, you know, that there's other people out there that are feeling going through the same bullshit he's going through. Yeah which is what another thing that culture does and it can never be uh, diminished. And when you're in a business of diminishing everything simply so that you can hold on to all of the power and all of the money, mm-hmm. then you, you, we have a problem. Yeah. Right. Because you, 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 you're fucking stepping on what I know is beautiful. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're taking a dump on what I know is you know it's like taking a dump on a Picasso, right? Fuck, man, clean that shit up, yeah. bro. Hundred percent. Picasso is not as cool as I am. <laughs> I make a half a billion dollars a year. Man. How the fu- what the fuck does Picasso make? Yeah, yeah. I'm way cooler than Picasso. Exactly. That's how management thinks, man. Yeah, yeah. He's a fucking loser. Yeah. You see my car? You see what I drive? You see that fucking Lamborghini that I got? Mm-hmm. Does Picasso have one of those? He's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He's a loser. So that's the crux of where we're at. Yeah. With regard to management and labor. And uh, if that's the elephant in the room, have at it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> right. I uh, I did want to ask, you know, with all productions being down right now, um, what are you doing to grow as an artist outside of, you know, the industry at the moment? 
I can't tell you that. Got it. <laughs> Top secret. I'm not allowed to talk about <laughs> how, how I get through this. I'm, I'm not even sure I'm allowed to even have this conversation with you because I, I feel like, am I promoting Sons of Anarchy or Hellboy? By yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, we're, just, we're, just, we're just talking. If, if they come and take me away, it's your fault, motherfucker. Oh. <laughs> Specifically you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's my just, fault. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So but, fucking um, funny. Uh, and then I, I guess, you know, circling to to that to that point of yours, what is, I guess, what what is, what is I guess, a way that you feel is, is the best course of action to kind of make sure that everyone's treated fairly and everyone that can, I guess, is there a way for everyone to be happy at the end of the day at this, at this point? The, I, it, it was, it was the thing I alluded to uh, yesterday. Um, which is um, come back to the bargaining table. Don't wait for us to start losing our houses and bleeding and bleeding out and, mm. and, uh, and, and watching our kids starve. Come back to the bargaining table. Let's hammer out these things. But let's start with the premise that we really respect what each other brings to the table. Of course. I really respect you giving me the opportunity to make beautiful things. You should really respect when we deliver them to you mm-hmm. because that's where all the wealth comes from. Right. That's where the stock prices come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've actually done something for the world that is everybody should be grateful for. So why come to the bargaining table looking to kill me looking to hurt me looking to demean me come with a fucking barrel full of love and hugs and kisses and goddamn i'm gonna i'm gonna show you so much respect and admiration and betty Betty davis once said this about working for the 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 old guard, you know, the, the original studio heads. Mm-hmm. If they had just shown a touch of kindness, we would have walked through walls for them. It's so easy mm-hmm. to do it that way than to than to say the only way I have any leverage of, over you is if I convince you. I gaslight you into thinking you are valueless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what this strike is about. They are trying to gaslight into thinking we have no value and we don't deserve to be asking for the things we're asking for, which is just fundamentally mm. some health care. And if you make a, a gazillion dollars because you sold our show to 15 other places, just give us 1% of that. That's called a residual. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not asking if you fail to give us money, but if you succeed, if you made a shitload more money, yeah, why wouldn't you give it to the people who who, who created the thing that you just sold? For yeah, forty-five over. Right. So uh, there it is, guys. That's all of it. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank thank you for for you know elaborating on that, and thank yeah. you for for being willing to talk about that on a platform like this. So we thank you. We appreciate that. And yeah. then um, I guess, you know, circling back sort of as, as a semi-segue, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 
so recently, are we, are we, uh, how much, how, how much more we got here? No, oh, not, not too much. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap up soon, but um, okay. yeah, I've, I guess one, one in question, one question that I, I kind of wanted to wait to ask you to more towards the end, but um, on Instagram recently, you said that you learned everything you needed to know about being a man from cinema, from films, from, from movies, from doing movies. What were some of the films growing up that taught you how to be a man, as you said? Um, God damn, I mean, uh, if I wanted to learn um, how to lead mm-hmm. uh, and, and do it in a way where um, you respected everyone else's place in the world so that you weren't imposing yourself on anyone with your leadership. I watched John Wayne. If I wanted to uh, learn style and panache in fighting for the little guy, I watched Errol Flynn. If I wanted to learn the best way to make a martini, I watched William Powell, the thin man. If I wanted to learn how to treat a woman, I watched Cary Grant. My wife just said I should watch more of it. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get in here, Don? Uh, my mouth is getting dry over here. These guys yeah. just stop, can't stop asking me fucking questions. <laughs> well, we will end on this, though. If you have one piece of advice to give, whether it be to a young up-and-coming actor or young people in general, what's one piece of advice you would give us? Find something to do that you love. And I'm not the first one to say that. Um, I won't be the last. But if you... It's a cliche. You've heard it a million times. Mm -hmm. Find something to do that you love. You'll never work a day in your life. And then the other thing is that you should... um, Every time... You're not going to fail unless you try to do something. If you are stay at home and stay safe and, 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 and never, you know, push anybody's buttons or, or fuck with the status quo, you'll never fail. But you'll never get anywhere anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're on a trajectory where you're trying to accomplish things and you have a lot of big dreams, the first thing you need to do is make sure you understand that every time you fail, You've given yourself an opportunity to become smarter, bigger, and better for the next time. So make failure a friend. Treat it as if it's it's the best thing that can happen to you. Because all of your learning and all of your character growing is going to come when you're getting the shit beat out of you. You're never going to get learn anything or get better when you're succeeding. It feels good. Mm-hmm. And that's what we all want. We want to feel good, you know, but it doesn't last. You got to find the next thing to go do. And that may require more punches in the nose or whatever. Uh, a lot of doors being slammed in your face. Mm-hmm. But you can't stop. You can't stop. So if you're going to keep going, you're going to fail. And if you make failure a friend, your life will be a whole lot easier. Wonderful. Thank Very you well so said. much. Thank you so much, Ron. We appreciate it. Um, you can find us streaming platforms, uh, Instagram, all that awesome stuff. Um, YouTube. YouTube. On our Discord. On our Discord. It's amazing. Uh, thank you yeah, again, you'll Ron. you send me uh, all that stuff, and, 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 and I can um, 
if I'm really bored one night, I'll listen to all of it. Yeah, 100%. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for even doing this. Ladies thank and gentlemen, ladies and Ron, Ron Perlman. Thank you. Thank, thank you, so you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you. see you guys later. Bye.